2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to, the, according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Please be seated. Good morning to you. It's uh, good to be together. It's great to have Pippa and Karis lead us alongside Dave and HE in worship. Good to uh, rejoice and give thanks for our choir and our musicians last week who led us in celebrating the resurrection. Uh, It's good for them to rest, we pray. And talked to David this morning. He said, "If, if you really want to know how a musician is doing, you ask them, the week after Easter. That's, that's a good indicator. So that's a mind, that helps us to be mindful of them and of Dr. Moody uh, as he uh, gets to catch his breath even a moment. And then uh, also the events happening in our congregation, right? We can be praying for Luis Vallejo, service for Constance this Thursday morning here at the church. We can be praying for uh, Ruth Muzzy and the children, for Sue and for Ann as Bob Muzzy's memorial service was yesterday, and, uh, and they're really feeling uh, that loss, but thankful for God's good provision. So it's good for us to keep these things in front of us this week. I want to uh, now keep God's word in front of us as we turn to this passage in 2 Corinthians. And as I do so, let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we come uh, with the joy of Easter still uh, ringing uh, resounding in our minds and our hearts, and we praise you and thank you. And yet we know, Father, uh, uh, the reality of life in, in this world can, uh, can break in pretty quickly. And we go from Easter morn to before the sunset hearing of uh, persecution of Christians across the globe and many who gave their life because they love Christ. That's the world we live in, Lord, and we need to hear from you in the midst of this, of this world, in its frailty and brokenness and fractured state. We ask you would speak now by your word, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name. Amen. Christian uh, statesman, um, Ravi Zacharias, apologist, uh, ambassador for Christ, uh, he wrote a book a few years ago entitled, Has Christianity Failed You? And in that book, he points to one of the greatest proofs of the truth of Christ and the reality of the resurrection, namely to the changed lives of Christians. He, he writes this, During the course of nearly 40 years, I have traveled to virtually every continent 
and seen or heard some of the most amazing testimonies of God's intervention in the most extreme circumstances. I have seen hardened criminals touched by the message of Jesus Christ and their hearts turned toward good in a way that no rehabilitation could ever have accomplished. I have seen ardent followers of radical belief systems turn from being violent, brutal terrorists to becoming mild, tender-hearted followers of Christ. I have seen nations where the gospel, banned and silenced by governments, has nevertheless conquered the ethos and the mindset of an entire culture. And he goes on to give an example of that very thing. In thinking about China, he says this, In the middle of the 20th century, after destroying all of the Christian seminary libraries in the country, Chairman Mao declared that Christianity has been permanently removed from China, never to make a return. And on Easter Sunday, just a few years ago, the leading English language newspaper in Hong Kong published a picture of Tiananmen Square on the front page and what it showed was a banner held high with the picture of Jesus replacing the picture of Chairman Mao and under it it said Christ is risen. That's a radical change. In just a short period of time, if you know anything about what's happening in Asia and in China, you know that God is working mightily by His Spirit in that part of the world. And we're told that in just 15 years or so, there will be more Christians in China than there are in this country. And it will become the largest Christian nation, if you will, the largest country of Christians in the world. And if you're following the trends, you know that, that the center of Christianity is on the move from, from the west to the east over the course of the next three decades. That's, that's a pretty radical change as you think globally. But I want to think here more intimately for Paul, more personally, about the radical change that he, that he encountered as he came face to face with the redeeming love of Christ. See, what we learn throughout the Scriptures is to understand love rightly is to be changed by it. In fact, to understand it is to see that it changes everything. The apostle, Paul, understood this. He wrote of it in many different places. He says at one point in Ephesians, speaking of God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. While we were still dead in our trespasses, made us alive to Christ. That's a pretty stunning change to go from dead to alive in a moment. That's what Paul is talking about at that very point of how that radical love begins to, to change us and move us and compel us and urge us forward into newness of life. 
something Paul knew particularly well. He knew it in a personal way. He knew of the redeeming and the relentless love of Christ that pursued him and confronted him on the road to Damascus in the person of Christ. And it changed Paul in a moment at the very core of his being. And it changed the course of his life forever. And it changed the church forever. Just just think with me about Paul for a moment. He describes himself in his own words as as a man of many advantages, a a man of standing and and stature, if you will, that that he uh, boasted in, that he took pride in. He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He had a national advantage of the tribe of Genesis. Of Benjamin, he had he had an ancestral advantage. He was he was tracing his line all the way back to Abraham. That he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, born of Hebrew parents. That is, with all the rights and privileges of of the covenant, being born under the covenant from the very day of his birth. And he goes on to say that as to the law, he was perfect. That is, he was a Pharisee. He he had a religious standing and advantage as as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That is, he was a five-star Pharisee. He was all about the right things from that vantage point. And as to righteousness, his standing before God, blameless under the law, blameless. That's Paul. That's his identity. That's what he he boasted in. It's what he reveled in. Until he came face to face with Christ. And now he says, all that rubbish, nothing, means nothing to me. I got it all wrong. Nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's pretty stunning change that's why Paul is able to say that God shows us his love and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us and that love for Paul turned him inside out he he was never the same as a result of that his life never looked the same the things that mattered to him changed radically forever the things that consumed him and his time were altogether different now and his very being was altogether different that's a relentless love a redeeming love found in Christ it's it's striking that for Paul that didn't mean then that life would be kind of easy and comfortable hit the beaches under the palm trees little mango smoothie maybe and sit back enjoy life No, he was told that he would suffer greatly for Christ, for the sake of Christ, for the cause of the gospel. And so he did. He would endure persecution and affliction and beating and imprisonment. And he would come under vicious attack by many because he preached Christ and him crucified as the only way to stand before a holy God. 
So that brings us right to 2 Corinthians. It's, a, it's an epistle of tears. It, it is a letter that Paul is writing to detail the opposition he faced. And that, that they would know that he always preached Christ and the cross. And never deviated from it. He speaks of, of the persecution that he endured. Affliction, hardship calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, cold. On numerous occasions he comes back to fill that out and give us a greater picture of what that meant. But it was the reality of his life and and he speaks to it in chapter 4 and again in chapter 6 and right here in the middle he begins to think about what it is to have this ministry then of reconciliation that he is sought to be faithful to and that he is commending now to those in the church in Corinth. It, it, is, it is an outworking of the redeeming love of Christ. This, this love that compels him to walk in newness of life and to have this ministry and message of reconciliation that God has reconciled himself to sinful human beings through his Son Christ Jesus on the cross at Calvary. And that we know it to be true and that he was raised again on the third day. Friends, Paul's defense of his ministry in this book is, is really a celebration of what Christ has done in him. And it has everything to say to us in, in trying to understand what does it mean to know a resurrected Christ the week after Easter, a living Savior. How does that really matter as we seek to know Him, to love Him, and to live for Him? And in these four short verses, Paul begins to give us a bit of an inside look, if you will, of what moved him, what, what, what drove him in his direction and purpose and, and identity, all the things that, that were significant to rightly living out the realities of the resurrection for Paul. Specifically, he begins to show us these, these new realities that he was understanding now in their fullness and substance. And I, I just, maybe it's, it's easy for Paul to be a bit of a distant figure as we read through the scriptures sometimes. But, but we're given enough biographical account to realize that he's a remarkable man not in and of himself but because of what Christ has done in him and and when you think about what he endured for the sake of Christ you you can't help but walk away and ask how'd you do that Paul really I mean beatings imprisonment Suffering, shipwreck. Well, how do you do that? I mean, I don't know that reality. Maybe many of you don't know it as well. Some of you might. How do you do that? How do you have that kind of confidence? That kind of courage and boldness to move beyond yourself for the sake of Christ and for the glory of Christ? How do you live like that? 
That's what I want, Paul. I want, I want to understand that in such a way that that, that boldness will surface in, in the, the, the most prominent of places so that I'm quick to speak of the hope of Christ that I have and the life that I have in Christ. Give me that kind of boldness even, Lord, please. See, that's, that's what Paul is, is showing us and pointing us to, and he does so through these four new realities. Very simply, that, that he has a new motive and a new purpose and a new perspective and a new identity. That's, that's, that's how he takes us through these four verses. So look with me in verse 14, that we in Christ, if we are in Christ, we have a new motive, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. It, it constrains us. That is, it, it moves us. It urges us forward. Imagine, if you will, a, a raging river, right? Whose banks rise high and those banks control and direct the course of that river and the force of it to go in the direction it's intended. That's the picture here of a constraining love, a controlling love, a, a motivating love. And, and for Paul, that's striking, right? There was a time where he just boasted in his advantages, in his identity, who he was and what he was about, his works, his zeal, his self-righteousness. But he's been laid low now, brought to his knees, face to face with a risen Christ He's gone through the first Good Friday and Easter of his life, so to speak. Now, and now he's moved not by religious zeal, but by redeeming love. And it's stunning to see what that looks like in his love, in his life. This idea of constraining or controlling speaks to a pressure that creates an action. Think of it that way. Right? A pressure that creates an action that actually rules and dominates. You ever think of the love of Christ ruling and dominating your life, your will, your emotions, your words? That's, that's what, what Paul is speaking to, and, and he has a very specific expression of that love in mind. He says that one has died for all, therefore all have died. See, that's how we know the love. For Paul, there's this indestructible link between the love of Christ and the death of Christ. The two are inseparable. You can't speak of one without the other. To say that you know the love of Christ is to know that he died for you. To know that he died for you is to, to know that he loves you. Those two things hold together in this verse and they begin to show us and move us and shape us in all of life. And in this one little verse, Paul unpacks a massive biblical truth with this little word for. That one has died for all. Literally, in the original, it means on behalf of. That is, in place of. It speaks to substitution. That Christ died in your place, taking the punishment you deserved on the cross. That's the reality that Paul is bearing witness to here. And I love how succinctly John Stott speaks of, of this 
idea of substitution at the heart of salvation, he says this. For the essence of sin, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation, being rescued, saved, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's substitution. That, that's what it is to know the love of Christ, that he died for you. And that in him then you have died. You have died to self and you have died to sin if you look to him in faith and trust him for the forgiveness of sin. That's the reality of what he has done. That he's died for those whom he loves. I, I can't think of any knowledge greater than that. So grand. No power greater than understanding that in its fullness and in its depth. No motivation so strong as to rightly grasp the redeeming love of Christ that then compels me and moves me. It's not, friends, when we talk about love, it is not warm-hearted sentimentality. That's not what we're talking about. I, uh, I learned this week that... Um, I think it was for 2014 on, on uh, Google, the, the most powerful search engine in the world, the most uh, popular question, the question asked more than any other question was, was not, how come I never see baby pigeons? It, it was, what is love? What is love? Entered again and again and again and again by thousands. Wanting to know and understand love. Maybe for some in a cursory way. A foolish way. Maybe for others wanting to know it because they're hardwired to want to know it. In, it, in the depth of who they are to rightly know what it is to be loved. And be loved by the sovereign God of the universe. When you grasp that, it, it moves you along. How does our, our hymn say it? It moves you along like a mighty ocean, right? Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love leading onward. The current of thy love, the, 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 the force and the power of that love leading onward. But onward to where? It moves us, it motivates us for what? That, that's the purpose, Paul tells us in verse 15. He says, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again and was raised that, that means, Paul is saying, that not only do you have this new motive to move you forward, but now you have a direction to go in, a new purpose. And that purpose is that you no longer live for yourself, but you live for Christ, who died for you. Now, let, let's, again, 
I mean, if I'm honest, that living for self comes pretty easy. I think uh, it, it was marriage that helped me see that with its greatest clarity, right? That selfishness and that self-centeredness that all of a sudden God had given me somebody by my side to remind me of how selfish I really was. And that's the reality of human life. That's part of being fallen, frail creatures as we live for ourselves and we can think of that at any, at any point in any given day of how I pursue my desires, my passions, my interests, the things that, that have my attention. That's, that's what it is to live for self. It comes pretty naturally. We don't have to work at it. I, I kind of like how uh, Oswald Sanders talks about it under the subject of leadership, spiritual leadership, his classic book. He's talking about the perils of leadership. And he says this, he says it is the practice about self being kind of self-oriented. It is the practice of thinking and speaking much of oneself, the habit of magnifying one's attainments or importance. It leads one to consider everything in relation to himself rather than in relation to God and the welfare of his people. That's the right way to understand this self-interest, right? That it means everything relates to me, and that's what I really care about. I'm at the center. But Paul is saying, no longer do you live that way, but now you live for him who died for you, which means Christ is at the center, and everything is in relationship to him. And so I, I seek to live for him, even for the welfare of his people. So that's, that's, a, that's a good place to start. Paul understood this. That, that, that self, living for self, for Paul, turned him in on himself. And it was leading him down a path of destruction until Christ intervened. And he began to live for God. Not for religion. Not for for self-righteousness, not for others. But he began to live for Christ. Friends, to live like Christ means, to, to live for Christ means you live like Christ. It means you learn to love the unlovely. Right? It, it, it means you learn to serve and to, to follow him into maybe some difficult places because you know he has a good work to do and he wants to use you to do it. It means you consider the interests of others more important than your own. To live for Christ is to set him before everything else. And that only comes when you grasp the love of Christ, the great redeeming love of Christ. That's a new motive motive and a new purpose. And, And it... It begins to change everything. It changes how we see everything and it begins to give us a new perspective on life as well. That's verse 16. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. This regarding is, is this perspective Right, this view of life. And he says we, we used to regard Christ according to the flesh. That is, we regarded him, we, our perspective, our view was that he's a man. 
He's a man who died on a cross. Bad, bad way to go, but he's just a man. That's, that's what Paul believed, and he's a, he's, a, he's a bit of a rabble-rouser, this man, because now there are others who are following him and claiming all sorts of things. So that, was, that was viewing Christ according to the flesh, and Paul's saying we don't see him that way no longer. We don't see him as a mere man or a moral example or a good teacher or a prophet simply. We see him as the risen son of God. And in seeing him that way, it changes how we see everything. And we have a new view then of Christ and a new view of life. We have a resurrection view of life. I think this is what C.S. Lewis had in mind when he was talking about Christianity. And he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it but because by it I see everything else. See, at the heart of Christianity is the resurrection. And when we grasp what Christ has done, and we see him as a living, resurrected Savior, then that changes how we see everything. See, that's, that's the beauty of the resurrection. It, it's precisely what we saw on Easter morn, isn't it? When Mary and the women go to the empty tomb, they're they're looking for Christ. They're they're looking for a dead body, a dead Jesus. And they are confronted with a resurrection view in two questions Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And in that moment, they see that Christ is risen and it changes everything. It's the same truth that happened to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And at the end of that encounter, they walk away and they say, The Lord is risen indeed. Resurrection view of life. That's the new perspective that comes because of Christ And what he's done, it's that new reality for Paul that causes him to see everything differently. And the old point of view now is replaced with the new point of view. In fact, they collide at the empty tomb. And that now changes everything for Paul in how he sees Christ and how he sees others. He no longer longer, uh, regards them according to the flesh. That is, he he doesn't look at people with outward appearance as his first concern. He doesn't care about their wealth or their intellectual capacity or or their standing or, you know, who they work for. He's not concerned with outward appearances. He now sees them radically different. He sees them in, in an eternal sense as as those created in the image of God with eternal purpose, with with the purpose of God desiring to redeem them and draw them unto himself. And so he goes about his life in light of that new perspective, giving everything he is and everything he has for the sake of Christ so that some might come to see him for who he is, no longer according to the flesh, by earthly wisdom. Again, I think, I think Lewis helps us here in the weight of glory. 
he, he's talking about how we should see others. And he says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke and work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Lewis understood how the resurrection changes everything in how you understand people and how you seek to love them now as a result of what Christ has done for you. Even when they're unlovely. Maybe it's your neighbor with the barking dog at three in the morning. And you're wrestling with uh, a kind word to them as you tip your hat the following morning. Maybe it's with those who have uh, rubbed you the wrong way, pushed some buttons, uh, done some wrongs against you, and, and your desire to love them and, and to see them for who they really are is waning. And you need to be reminded anew, afresh, of how God sees them and how, how, how the resurrection changes how we should see them. That's a new perspective. The last thing Paul shows us in this passage is that we also have this new identity. Probably one of the best known verses in the scriptures, right? You're a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new, behold, the new has come. I'm not sure our translations really capture the force of that text. There's there's an explosive element in that that phrase, in in those first seven words. There's There's a detonation that happens on the page, so to speak. It reads more like this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, boom, new creation, new reality, new person in Christ. That, that little phrase used more than 160 times in various ways throughout the New Testament, in Christ it is one of the most remarkable descriptions of the Christian experience in all of scriptures. It is an all-encompassing description of what it means to know and love Christ. It speaks to the new birth. Not, not merely changing some bad habits and, and some do's and don'ts. It refers rather to a radical pervasive spiritual recreation right before your very eyes on the page. That's what Paul is speaking to. A recreation of the inner being. That's new creation. That's how Sam Storm speaks of it. And I think rightly. It it speaks to our union with Christ and what it means to be in Him no longer separated from God, no longer under his wrath, alienated from God, guilty, dead in our sins, corrupted and captivated 
by our sin. No longer, Paul says. Now you are new, new creation in Christ. You are reconciled to God, declared righteous, adopted as sons and daughters of the living God, made alive, free from the bondage and the power of sin, pure, holy, blameless, because of the righteousness of Christ, because of what Christ has done. That's that's a new identity. It means you no longer have to live in accord with the old identity. It means, means the power of sin has been severed and been broken once and for all, and you can live for Christ. That's, that's the beauty of this, this new man. And, and it, it comes to us in the perfect tense. That, that is to say that that. This new creation comes and it is here to stay. There's nothing that can undermine it. That's the hope of Christ. If you are in Christ, if you trust in him, if you love him, if you follow him, it means you're a new man, you're a new woman, you're under a new covenant with a new commandment. You're given a new song to sing, a song of redemption as you journey toward a new Jerusalem and you await the coming of a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? That's what Christ, that's what Paul is speaking to. And it only comes about because you are reconciled to a holy God through the righteous blood of Christ. It's good for us to dwell on that even the week after Easter. To ponder that anew. Such that it would invade those moments of life today and maybe through the course of this week where I'm faced with a decision to pursue my own self, my desires, my passions, my wants, Or maybe those are right up against what Christ desires and what he wants. And then I'm reminded of of this new identity that is mine. I don't have to live in accord with that any longer. Because I've been moved and given a new motive and a new purpose and a new perspective. And I'm a new creation in Christ. Let those things speak unto our hearts as we, as we conclude, as we pray, as we hope, as we walk with Christ even this day. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for Paul. We thank you uh, that you have revealed yourself and shown us who you are. In a way, Father, that we recognize we must believe, we must turn to you in faith, we must affirm these things and, and now um, trust you for the life that you promise in Christ. Would you help us to do that, that we might walk in newness of life, not, not by sight, but by faith and hope in you above all things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.